from time to time, perhaps even today, as we sit here and worship, there is a, a burden, a, a passion, concern in your heart that um, has been there maybe for quite some time. It could be something about your own life. It might be something about someone you love. It might be a circumstance in our world. And you have felt the passion of this concern and this burden. And you have prayed about it. You have, you have done everything you know to try and address it spiritually. And it seems as if nothing is any different. There are those moments in our lives that we, we come to these kinds of experiences and our, our temptation is to say, it doesn't really matter if I pray or not. What's the point? I wonder sometimes if Abraham and Sarah... Don't wrestle with that too. It's hard to know exactly their view of God when he first appears to Abraham, at least in the where we have it in Scripture in Genesis 12. But you, know, you get the sense through their lives that, um, that they wrestle with things. It's interesting to me that Abraham is... is uh, 75 years old and Sarah is 65 when they first come onto the scene in Scripture. I suspect that like everybody else in their culture and perhaps even a lot of people in our culture, that they, in their culture, you are often defined by the children you have. It's a sign of blessing, one of the greatest signs of blessing. And they have spent their lives wrestling with the fact that they don't have children. And if they have, if they're human beings like us, then that has to be a painful thing for them. It has to be difficult for them, a struggle for them. However they understand God, I am certain that over those years together, they have cried out to God, why, how come, will you not answer this prayer? And I suspect by the time they get to be 65 and 75 years old, they probably have come to the point of saying, we've settled that. It's just not going to happen. It's still an ache in our hearts. It's still a disappointment. We, we still don't understand it. But we've come to the place of saying, it, it's, this is just the way it's going to be. And we've settled that. And then God comes to them and says, you're going to have a child. I'm going to give you descendants. And he shows Abraham the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore and says, this is how many descendants you're going to have. And they have to be both excited and a little bit apprehensive. And so they thank you, Lord, and they follow him to, to Canaan. And a year goes by and there's no child and two years, five years, ten years, twenty years. It's twenty-five years. Before that promise becomes reality. And I suspect that during those 25 years, there are conversations that the two of them have. And Sarah looks at Abraham and says, are you sure you heard him right? He was talking about us. There wasn't anybody else in the room that may, you may have misunderstood, misinterpreted. Abraham says, that's what he said. 
And they keep waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And there is this point in our lives that in our encounter with God, in our prayers, that we keep waited so long that we think, what's the point? I read about a woman who had spent her whole life praying. She was, you know, 35, 40 years old. And she had spent her life praying for two important things. They were good things. They were things that they're blessings of God. They're things that, that every, anyone would want to pray for. There was absolutely nothing wrong with what she was praying about. For God to answer these prayers that were deep in her spirit, that she deeply desired. And, and the answers never came the way she wanted them. And, and though she studied the scriptures fervently and she prayed fervently. And, and she was a part of a church in a, in a wholehearted way. She eventually came to the place of saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't risk. I can't stick out my neck. I can't trust any longer. And she not only gave up praying about it, she gave up God completely. And said it's not worth it. And I think there's a temptation to that. You sort of see, you see the temptation in Abraham and Sarah as they wait. After 10 years, Sarah says to Abraham, maybe we're supposed to do this ourselves. Maybe, maybe it's just you, Abraham, and it's not me that the promise was made. So here's my servant girl, Hagar. And so Abraham and Hagar have a child, and all that does is just mess up things even more. And there is, a, there is this fine line between praying and waiting and praying and acting doing. Sometimes we pray and God says, this is what I want you to do. Other times we pray and you get the impression of, I want you to wait. And there is no formula for that. I wish there was a formula. I wish there was a book, you know, sort of like in your car, when the light comes, yellow light comes on the dashboard, you say, get out the book, look it up. What do you do about that? I wish that's what we had so that the situation comes up and we look at our book and say, okay, this is a waiting thing. So we wait. And another thing, oh, this is a doing thing, so we do. But the reality is there's no book, there's no formula. And what happens with you is not the same as what happens with me. And what God, how God wants you to respond to your prayers is different than I want me to respond to my prayers. There is no formula except can we trust God? Can we trust Him? And we live with that razor's edge struggle. Waiting and doing Waiting and doing. I kind of like the fact that Sarah laughs. You know, when I read that story, it's one of those places in Scripture where I say, this is real people doing real things, living real lives. Because we can all imagine ourselves in the tent, hearing this go on, and chuckle to ourselves about it. And then being confronted and doing exactly what Sarah does. Laugh? I didn't laugh. What are you talking about? I didn't laugh. What laugh? I didn't laugh. And the guy, the angel simply says, yeah, you laughed. And then he move on. I mean, that's us. But I like the fact that Sarah is honest enough to say, really? And I don't think it's only the fact that now she's 89 years old and he's telling her she's going to have a child when she's 90. I think it's also, you expect me to stick my neck out again? I've heard this before. I've heard this many times, and I haven't seen it yet. And there is this little chuckle that goes on in her, and probably a little bit in us, of saying, Lord, really? Really? 
Can I really believe you're going to do this? I think there's a, there is a, a, a sense in Abraham and Sarah, what God is asking of them is to see things differently than they typically see them. And I think he's asking the same thing of us. I, I am nearsighted. So if I take off my glasses, not only do you not recognize me, the whole Superman thing again, right? But also because, I mean, I can't see anything. I cannot make out any faces. I, I, if I didn't know that Paul and Debbie were sitting here, I would not know Paul and Debbie were sitting there. I, cannot, I can't recognize anyone. It's just a blur. I can't see the big E on the chart when I go to the, the eye doctor's office. I'm, you know, I have trouble with that. I've never understood people who are farsighted because it never made sense to me that you could, you could see things far away, but you couldn't see them right in front of your face. That never made sense to me, but that's because I'm nearsighted. And the more I pondered that, I think most of us are nearsighted prayers. All we can see is what's right in front of us. Everything else is a blur. And for some reason, God seems to like far-sighted praying as well as near-sighted praying. I think God wants us to pray about these things that are right in front of us, but what for us, we tend to say, okay, God, what are you doing about this right now in the moment? And God is saying, well, I've got some ideas about that, but they're kind of out there. But all we're thinking about is the moment. All we're thinking about is where we are right now. When God... I think one of the reasons he doesn't always answer the prayers that we pray is because our prayers, there may be nothing wrong with those prayers, but they will lead us to something that is so much smaller than what God has in store for us. And he's looking for that longer picture, that bigger picture. And quite frankly, when we're in the moment, it's hard to see the big picture. All we're thinking about is the moment, the pain of the moment, the struggle of the moment, the difficulty of the moment. That, that's the hard thing. And, and, and I struggle with being farsighted in my praying because I want things to happen in the moment right now. Maybe you do too. You probably have played the game Mousetrap. Probably familiar with that game, Mousetrap. Right? They've made new versions of it. It's popular when I was young. And it's this thing, that you build this contraption and your, your pieces are little mice and you go around the board. And as the game goes on, you keep putting more pieces together until you get it all put together. And then if you get the right, if you, if you land on the right spot and somebody else's mouse is in the right spot, you can pull the trigger on it and it goes through all these contraptions of kicking things and balls rolling and men diving backwards. And eventually it lowers the cage down on your opponent's mouse and you capture it. I got to be honest with you, this is kind of a boring game to play. Seriously. You know, I mean, the fun part of it is the thing all put together and you get to see it, all this stuff happen. And so what we tend to do is just put it together and then just do it, you know. And, but to play the game, particularly with children, they're like, when are we going to do it? Well, you got to put 15 more pieces together on here before you can do it. And, and you're going around the board and piece after, you know, it's kind of slow and boring to get to what you really want of the action. But if you put this game together along with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and and you became a little one-inch, two-inch little person on that game board and a mouse chasing you around the game board, if you were just, all you could see was the next piece going in place, you would think to yourself, what does that possibly have to do with helping with this mouse? It's just a piece. It means nothing. It doesn't look like a mouse. It doesn't have anything to do with catching a mouse. It's just a piece. It would make no sense. 
But from our perspective, we see it. We understand that when you put the third and the fourth and the tenth pieces on, it's building towards something that's getting to a conclusion. And I'm convinced that there are an awful lot of times in our lives when that's what God is asking us to see and to believe. Even when we're in the we're in the middle of it and it looks as if there can be nothing redeeming about this, there can be nothing good in this, there's nothing of value in this, God is saying, trust me. Trust me. I've got more in mind. Bigger things. Deeper things. And our response to that call of faith, maybe the most profound response that we can make to that kind of, that call to faith is persistent prayer. When we are at a crossroads, when we feel like we, have, we are up against a wall and we've been praying about something continually, 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 and nothing seems to be changing, maybe it's even getting worse. The most profound act of faith is to pray about it again. Because every time we pray that prayer, we're saying subtly, God, I believe in you. I believe that you know what you're doing. I believe that you're leading this and you're leading me and us and the circumstances to something that I can't see right now. But I trust you enough to pray it one more time. One more time. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable about a woman, uh, a widow, who comes to an unjust judge to get justice. And he won't give it to her because he doesn't care about her. And she keeps coming and coming and coming. And finally, she badgers him long enough that he says, I'm getting tired of this woman. I just want to get rid of her, so I'll give her what she wants. And the, par- the, you know, the, the meaning of that parable is not, if we nag God long enough, he'll give us what we want. Jesus says, how much more your heavenly Father will give good gifts to your children. Not because you nag him. The point of the parable is, when you feel like you should give up, you keep praying. Luke tells us in verse 1, before the parable, he says, Jesus told the disciples a story so that they would pray and never give up. And why would he feel the need to do that? Because all of us face circumstances where we want to give up. And we want to stop praying. And he says, don't. That prayer is an act of faith. That prayer is an act of trust. And what we have to come to see is that faith is not a, it's not a, a necessary inconvenience to us. Faith is actually the pathway to experiencing God's shalom. See, we think faith is something we have to sort of trudge our way through. And, and if there's, you know, we, we would... If we could find a way to get what, what, uh, to the things we want without faith, we could do it because faith is hard. It's an inconvenience. And, well, it's necessary God set things up that way. But that's not the way it is. Faith is actually something that leads us to a deeper relationship with God. That's why God keeps calling us to trust. That's why there are circumstances in our lives that require faith and trust. Not just because God is saying, I think I'll mess with these people. But it's because we draw closer to Him. And the closer we draw to Him, the more we experience the fullness of who He is. And in many ways, 
the, the need to faith, need for faith and the need to trust and, and, and the whole idea of waiting is actually a gift of God. I don't see it that way most of the time. Most of the time, waiting for me is an obstacle. I have to do everything I can to get through. But to be forced to wait for God puts me in a position where I need to have faith and I need to trust. And every time I do that, I experience a little bit more of the grace and the intimacy that God designed me to have with him. So I love what Paul writes in Romans about Abraham. He says, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on Abraham's obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. So the promise is received by faith. It's given as a gift, of, a free gift. And we're all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. If we have faith like Abraham's, for Abraham is the father of all who believe. It's faith. And what I love about what Paul writes is that it's not just Abraham himself. It's not just us experiencing this intimacy with God, but we become channels for other people to experience it. Because a little bit later, he says, and when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit, too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. When he raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And we become channels of faith and trust for other people. And for them experiencing God's fullness and shalom in a way that they might not experience unless we let God work in us first. One of the things that that strikes me as I read through Scripture, as I read through the lives of saints, is that when I... When I look at trust and faith, it tends to be sort of this necessary inconvenience. But the people who have come to the place of understanding God look at it as something to celebrate. And so Paul, who writes to the Philippian church from prison, says, I find great joy even in my circumstances. Because I know God is using it for something deeper in my life and the lives of others. I read through the the words of, of, of great saints through the ages and they keep coming back to as hard as this circumstance is, I find joy in learning to trust in God. Because I believe, I know That whatever is happening to me, whatever the circumstances are that I'm wrestling with, whatever the struggle, however difficult and and deep it is, I believe that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. And we can count on Him. He's trustworthy. When we see it and when we don't. I think thinking about all of this is what caught my attention when I read the 
a story about a woman named Louisa Stead. She was born in 1850 and uh, was born into a Christian home. When she became an adult, she married a fine Christian man. A few years later, they had a beautiful daughter. And she tells a story about being with her family on the beach of Long Island Sound. Her husband and four or five-year-old daughter were playing in the sand. And, and she was sitting there watching them and just reflecting on her life. And she was reflecting, giving thanks to God for her own faith, for his blessings to her, her husband, her daughter, their lives, just almost everything in their lives she was giving thanks to God for was a blessing. She was startled out of her thinking by cries that she heard out in the waves. And she looked up and she saw a young boy wrestling and fighting. He'd gone out too far. Her husband also heard him and he handed her the child and jumped into the water and swam out to save this boy. He got to him, grabbed him, and began to bring him into shore, but the boy was frightened and he kept fighting with this man and fighting with him and wrestling and the waves were pounding them and they'd go under and come up and under and up and then they went under and they didn't come up. And later that evening, they found her husband's body. As you can imagine, she was grief-stricken. And over the course of the next few months, she cried out to God, Why? And she prayed and she prayed and she she kept seeking God and calling out to God. And and her situation in her life didn't get better, it got worse. It got to the place where she and her daughter sat down at the kitchen table one evening and realized they had absolutely nothing to eat in the house. And absolutely no means of getting food. And what they did was to pray. They said, Lord, we trust you. We need your help. And the next morning she went out, opened the back door, and there in the stoop was a basket full of food and an envelope with just enough money to buy shoes for her daughter. It wasn't, wasn't going to change her life But it was something. It was something. And she came in and she she and her daughter knelt down and they gave thanks to God. And then she went over to her desk and she sat down and she wrote a poem. And the poem started like this. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus. 
just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I proved Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore.